0: Welcome to Off The Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community to talk to them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, I sit down with James Graham, the head men's and women's water polo coach at University of Pacific. If you enjoy the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. All right. I'm here at Orange Lutheran High School. Uh, lucky enough to have James Graham on the phone with me, the head men's and women's coach at the University of the Pacific uh, in Stockton. Uh, James, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to start off really quick. I know you're in the middle of uh, women's season. Uh, you had a really um, a, a really long men's season, um, and so I just wanted to start off uh, with, you know, how did you get started uh, coaching water polo?
1: Yeah, so I was playing in high school, and after I finished my high school career, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as far as a player is concerned, and. I got recruited to some junior colleges but I decided to take a year off out of high school and I went back and decided to coach my high school team and help coach my high school former high school team and that's really where it all began. So I immediately went into coaching out of high school. Uh from there I've been coaching every year since. So I went on to junior college and I was coaching while I was in junior college and and then I went to the University of Redlands and I coached, you know, club during that time and And then I went back and took over as head coach at Santa Rosa Junior College and then moved on to the University of Pacific. So really I got my start just straight out of high school, not really sure what I wanted to do and took a year off and decided I just wanted to stay in the sport and did
0: that by going back and working with some of the athletes that I was playing with and just trying to help the team do better. Yeah, and I remember um, hearing a little bit about your bio uh, several years back when you were doing, I believe it was the youth team uh, or the cadet team. Um, I was one of the zone coaches and you were doing evaluations and And you had talked about playing at the University of Redlands. What was that experience like um, being at the University of Redlands? Yeah, that was an um, amazing
1: experience. Uh, my, co- my head coach there at the time, Tom, who's still coaching there, he does a great job with the program and and for me, it ended up being a perfect fit. It was an awesome balance of water polo and uh, academics. Tom you know, puts together a really competitive program. We played a lot of really good teams. I felt challenged uh, there on a regular basis. I got a chance to play all the time, which was something that I was looking for. And then on the same side, I got a chance to work on my degree in mathematics, which turned out to be a really important factor in my life. And the small class sizes and the personal attention that I had from my professors there, I always say that when I go back to Redlands, I'll have dinner with some of my professors. And it's just an amazing relationship. You get a chance to form there at the University of Redlands with your professors. So I loved both the water polo and the academics. I wouldn't have traded for the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important, you know, aspect of, of your career because, you know, in talking to some other coaches um, just in, in these other episodes that I've done, you know, a lot of the growth of water polo, the you know, conversations of that nature, you know, uh, we talk about growing at that division three, division two level and, and working our way out. And I think, you know, hearing from somebody who played at that level and had a really good experience and didn't feel like you lost much out of it. Um, I, you know, I I think that that's a really important piece to it. Um, and, and I would assume that, you know, the private school and now that you're at university of the Pacific, there's a similar pitch, uh, going to the the athletes that you're recruiting. Is that, is that accurate or am, am I off on that?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, here at Pacific, we're a little larger than the University of Redlands, but we got a lot of the same feel, and the small class sizes, and the, and the relationships you develop with the professors, and walking around campus, and it's a, pretty much impossible to go- walk from one side to the other side without running into friends or people you know, and that's the same kind of things that ha- happen at you know, the University of Redlands. So. Um, I feel very much at home at UOP because of that I believe I believe in the mission here because it was so important to me uh, throughout my development as an athlete and a student at the University of Redlands so it was um, it was an easy transition for me to come to Pacific and feel that I was in an environment that was comfortable and I fit into and made sense to me
0: yeah I think we were. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think we were hired at the same time, you at UOP and me at Concordia. And I think we met up a couple yeah. of times and um – um uh, at, yeah, the, we had some,
1: we had some good games. Yeah.
0: Inland empire invite was one. I remember that game. Yeah, uh, and, you then, got us. Uh, and then at your place, which was an awesome environment. I mean, I love the pool. I love the environment. You guys are hosting NC toys, right? Next year. Yeah. We host, uh, NC toys for both men and women next year. So men in the fall 19 and the women spring 20. That, that's, that's really cool. Um, and so, you know, being, um, You know, outside of the quote unquote top four, um, but being an obviously an extremely competitive program. I mean, you're you're competing for a national championship uh, year in and year out since, you know, since you've built that program back up. Um, What is your, you know, being on that side of things, what is your feeling about college water polo right now? I know you were a big part, a big promoter of the GCC conference. Um, I remember seeing some posts and some things that I read, but, uh, what is your uh, feeling about water polo right now in college? Um, as far as like the strength of the team or the quality of the game or what? I I think, I think sort of just the overall experience of the path to get to the national championship, you know, equity, like, do you feel like things are moving in the right direction where you're, everyone's getting a, a good opportunity? Um, do you feel like it's growing? Um, you know and it could be just from your perspective from the you UO, from UOP
1: yeah I think that from you know we we formed a new conference the GCC so we're we're the only school that's in the GCC on both the men's and women's side and our athletic directors you know worked to form these this conference they were kind of the key players in it writing the bylaws making things happen stuff like that so UOP was intricately involved in making these conferences and the, this conference and there was a reason for that we wanted to create access and opportunity to the national championship and getting a conference with schools that we felt were similar to us and create a positive environment for the student athletes now we were in the mpsf before um on the men's side which i was happy to be in and uh we were competing at the highest level there uh with the men but as much as I like that, to have the opportunity to get to the national championship on a more regular basis is uh, obviously appealing because one of the things that I learned in 2013 is the hardest thing, I think, about trying to win a national championship uh, before we formed the GCC conference was actually just getting to the national championships and getting to uh, the nc2a tournament because you look at the number of times teams qualified for that that were outside the pac-12 it almost never happened and that is a you know, you can't win it if you can't get there. Yeah. And if you look back at our 2013 season and you actually analyze the results, we had a number of wins against the Pac-12 by one goal. If you were to change any one of those one goal wins to a one goal loss, we likely would not have qualified to make it to the A tournament that year, despite the fact that we ended up in overtime in the national championship game. That's how razor thin the margin is. Yeah. Now we have this opportunity to get there and compete on, you know, on a regular basis. So, you know, out of our conference, Long Beach got there this year, we got there last year, Pepperdine, uh, you know, won the previous year, but we didn't have the uh, AQ at that time. So I think this is a good thing for water pole because anytime you have only the same teams competing for it, I don't think that is uh, a recipe for growing interest in the sport. If every year in the NBA, you know, or the NFL or the NHL, or whatever sport you pick, the same two teams were in the championship, you know, what's the, how, how interested are the viewers going to be? How global is this thing going to be? So we need to create an opportunity where people have access to the championship and upsets can happen. That's the beauty of March Madness.
0: Yeah. And I, I agree with that. And I think one of the interesting points that you made about that is that you named off three different winners in the GCC in the first, you know, in the last three years. Yeah. I mean, that alone right. seems to be, you know, you know, it raises eyebrows because you're going, okay, well I have an opportunity. I can pick one of these universities and I, and I might have a chance to get to that game, to get to the NC two A, And so, you know, with that same mentality, is it, is it important for other, uh, water polo schools to create comp, like, I know they did this on the East coast. They split the CWPA do you think that's the direction we're going in as we continue to add programs where we're adding conferences and adding maybe a bigger NC or, or making a bigger NC2A tournament? Is that the ultimate goal, you think? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's one of the goals. Uh, You know, the bigger the NCAA tournament, the more people that are able to be involved, obviously, still making it elite and special, right? Not just watering it down. Uh, the better because that makes it more exciting, more fans, more people involved. Uh, It helps grow the sport. So I think that getting teams involved and creating some new conferences, but ideally we would like to get away from creating conferences just for the sport of water polo. We'd like to have, you know, a WCC conference, which we have four teams, you know, that have, that are in the WCC. If we could get two more, that'd be great. Or a big West conference, so on and so forth. The PAC 12 conference. These, these would be the biggest strides forward for water pole. But uh, right now, a lot of people were against the concept and thought it was going to kill the sport, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the NCAA tournament expanded. Nothing negative happened. More teams are getting an opportunity to be a part of it. So, I mean, realistically, everybody that said that it was going to kill things just really wanted the status quo, and none of the things that they said you know, were going to happen to the sport happened. You know, nothing, nothing changed. I mean, the same thing happened when people didn't want us to go from 30 meters down to 25 meters. They thought it was going to kill the game. And there was going to be all kinds of brutalities and red cards and exclusions were going to go up and all this kinds of stuff. And statistically, none of that happened. So, um, you know, I think that there are people that want the sport to stay the same, but, the question, you know, I always ask is, you know, what is the end goal? What do we want for our sport? And if we want for our sport the same fan base we have, the same number of people that get paid to coach and have full-time op- job opportunities, the same number of opportunities for athletes to move on and get paid as professional athletes, if, I mean, if we're at the pinnacle, then then don't change a thing. Yeah. You know, but if if you don't think this is good enough, you don't think that we have, then well, we better look how have a serious discussion about some things that are changing. And if you keep arguing for it to be the way it is, then I'm, you know, like everyone always says, one of the most famous quotes, you know, is uh, doing the same thing over and over again as the de- and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. Yeah. So we, we got to look to make changes and
0: you and, know, I'm a proponent of that. And I mean, obviously like that takes a huge sacrifice on some of the status quo coaches and programs, and they're going to have to be on board for it to really work. I mean, it, otherwise, if there's resistance on one side and, and that, that side has a lot of the power or a big fan base or a big alumni base, then that obviously makes things really difficult because they're feeding the upper levels of water polo at USA Water Polo national teams and things like that. I mean, do you see – um resistance and uh, on that front, or do you feel like people have been, you know, like USA water polo obviously is, and I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, obviously I would right. say like, do you feel like they're open to what you're saying? Or do you feel like they're looking at status quo or, or they're in the middle or neutral, you know, do you see any, anything like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, And generally, generally when you speak about things, people that are being successful in the current circumstances are naturally unmotivated for change right? And people that uh, aren't reaping all of the benefits of the current circumstances are more motivated for change. And I also think whether it's like in a political system or in, this, in, in our you know, college water pool system, there's perceived power by the people who have the wealth at the time, and the, but the real power lies in the masses. Yeah. Just the question is whether the masses ever mobilize right? And so if, you know, D3 schools and D2 schools and, uh, you know, some division one schools all really said they wanted to make a change. Well, then, you know, there's not much that the top schools could do about it because they would just be outvoted drastically, you know? Um, but the question is how much to the top schools influence the direction of water polo, And, you know, there are some really great coaches with some great minds, uh, but you also have to separate, uh, their ideas from whether or not that just benefits them or is that, uh, an idea that benefits water polo and you have to kind of separate the signal from the noise sometimes because they're, they're kind of intertwined.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very like interesting topic. And I mean, I'm sure that we can go on about some of the ideas that you have for, for growing the sport inside out, um, you know, specific ideas. And, and I, I'd like to get to that. I'd like to come back to that, um, but I'd like to ask yeah. you another question. Uh, some of the questions that I sent out, you know, because you you've coached some like ridiculously high level players. I mean, you have guys on the national team, you have Olympians, um, you have guys who have come from overseas and are playing professional league uh, in Europe, long careers. Um, you know, what have you seen with these uh, successful players? similarities that you're looking for when you're recruiting or, you know, without giving your trade secrets, of course, but is there something in general that you're looking for that you, that you see a skill that just translates into the NC2A?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, I used to, when I started out coaching, look for some physical attributes, some certain abilities, all, all of those kinds of things. But the longer I've coached, the more I realize, like, some skills are the the most important, some characteristics are the mo- most important, and for me, mental toughness, determination, and work ethic are, like, the most important thing you can have, and then after that, then you're going to want to find people with the abilities to be able to do what you think is important inside of your program and your system, but consistently the players that have come in and been successful or came in and you didn't think much of but then turned out to be really important to your team you know those were the guys that had the mental toughness that could take uh you know c- criticism can own their mistakes could push through you know losses or a team going on a run on us in a game and uh you know the people that have the work ethic to come in and they're not being successful and they get in the pool and you know train on their own on a regular basis that kind of determination those those are the players that really do something and i think that's just true in life you know the people that are willing to do the work are going to be successful and talent is obviously an important factor in that but there's a famous saying you know work beats talent every time talent doesn't work so uh we try here at UOP to be a team of great work ethic and to set a standard for that, and that's one of the things we're working on right now with both teams, and we continually work on to try to keep that as a part of our culture. So you players that have that kind of mental toughness, that chip on their shoulder, it's a big thing
0: for us. Yeah, and it seems like you've been able to capture that mentality in a lot of the players that you've recruited over, over several years, and it's not like they, these players just showed up And they were just amazing, you know, right off the bat. I mean, they were, they were strong pieces. And I remember you used to do a a pretty robust um, recruiting announcement on social media. And I remember back on uh, talking water polo, you know, uh, water polo planet, they used to have that like kind of call in show. And I remember you doing uh, a big announcement when like Goron and and some of the other guys were coming in. Um, And so that was like a big pillar of your program, the, that recruiting class. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I remember that's really where things started going in that championship direction. And, I, I mean, I obviously, I'm sure you're super proud of getting to that final game and, you know, overtime, and I don't want to open up any old wounds, but, you know, just briefly, do you remember anything about that game that just stands out, that uh, positive, negative, you know, things that you... Um, just how you felt about being in that game, what, it, what it meant to you and, and that program.
1: Yeah, there's, there's no old wounds. Um, maybe I'm different than other people. Um, losses don't bother me. You know, some people say that they, um, they, they hate losing even more than they like winning. Well, I'm not that way. I love winning (laughs) way more than I hate losing. So, you know, uh, if you're been in an underdog situation and you've had to come up through the ranks, you've taken so many losses that if you worried about every one of them, you never sleep at night. So, um, I'm really super proud of that, uh, a championship game we played. And, uh, there's a lot of things that stood out to me about that. One, um, We created a belief, a belief in the program, a belief that things are possible, that for a long time, people didn't think anyone could compete with the Pac-12, and we showed that we could. And, you know, since 2012, you know, we have 11 wins versus the Pac-12. The rest of the nation combined has five. You know, we found a way to believe that we can win. So this is a, this is a really critical factor that came out of that national championship game and and then also just the kind of character that you need to get there. There was a journey that we went on that took a long time that culminated in that game and after that game when we lost it was kind of an interesting situation that my team is reflecting back on right now um, to be honest is that after that game i was hugging all my players and they were all you know emotional and talking about the game and every single one of them told me uh how they cost us the national championship game and were was apologizing to me and uh at the time you know, I told them it clearly wasn't their fault and that we gave everything we had. I was 100% proud of them. I wouldn't change a thing. And that's all true. But one of the things I realized is that, you know, those guys just had an extreme ownership. That not one of them blamed their teammates. Not one of them blamed me. Not one of them blamed anyone else. Every one of them knew there was something they could have done and they owned it the second the game ended. And that type of attitude and mentality is critical to success. And that's one of the things that we're, you know, that, I took out of that game, and that we're trying to make sure always stay as a part of the program. That they taught us how to own our results, and that we are in control of our own destiny, and that we could do anything we want to do if we just believe.
0: and I I think from an outsider's perspective, you know, you could see that there was belief in the system and what you were trying to do because you had to make some tough, you had to make some tough choices, I believe, because Obert was on the team, and Goron mm-hmm. was on the team. And you had to mix things up a little bit. That am I right on that? Am I correct on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Obert and Goron, uh, two amazing players, and so it was rare that we were playing the six most talented field players in the pool at the same time. But there's good reasons for that. You know, sometimes there's glue guys that make you just kind of tick a little bit better. Yeah. And uh, and but Obert and Goron work really well together. It's just as a team we functioned oftentimes better when they were subbing for each other and. A lot of times, most of that season, actually, Obert came off the bench. But in the national championship game, uh, we started Obert over Goron, and Goron was a hundred percent behind it. And then we started for the first time in the entire season Ben Stevenson, who was a freshman out of Reno, um, in that game over, uh, you know, a junior, so Sean Grady. And so the, it was amazing how the team was just willing to constantly make adjustments for whatever was in the betterment of the team.
0: Yeah, and and. I guess that sort of leads me into my next topic, which is something that I'm, I, I mean, I think you're really innovative and, you know, we haven't gotten a chance to talk a ton, you know, I mean, we've talked uh, briefly a couple of times and things like that, but you know, you are really big into analytics. Uh, you basically have brought analytics to the sport of water polo. I can't think of someone else. Maybe, maybe there is, but I can't think of someone else. Um, you're, you've brought in this uh social media part of it and i mean i've been on i've been on twitter for a long time so um you know <laughs> i i saw when you were started to post videos and things like that and and um you know you really tried to bring in this new innovative thing into the sport and into your program were those decisions that you made about Goron and Stevenson and Obert uh, and Sean Grady were those decisions based off of analytics were those decisions based off of things trends that you were seeing or was that a gut or what What was that really driven by
1: um all of that all of it all of those all of those um Different things played a factor in those decisions. I mean, who USC was going to start against us, uh, how we performed in different situations, uh, what our gut as coaching staff was. You know, there's all kinds of different factors that played into it. And analytics is a enormous part of our program. Uh, But one of the things I think people maybe misunderstand about analytics is, and they get afraid of with the numbers, is that you know I don't I don't want to coach and have the numbers tell me how to coach. Well. We use, we try to use analytics to help make every decision we have here in the program, but analytics don't make every decision. Do you understand like the difference, which is they're just a piece of the puzzle. It's like another coach in the room giving you their opinion and you listen to all your assistants and you take in that information and then you make the best decision possible based on all that information. And sometimes you go with their, you know, their thoughts and sometimes you go against their thoughts but it's part of your decision-making process. And that's why I think it's so important for our sport and um, that more people need to continue to adopt it because it just helps us make better and more informed decisions. It doesn't run your decisions. It's not, you know, artificial intelligence and they're running your program
0: from you and you're now obsolete. Yeah, so can you run down a little bit of what, you know, a basic... Let's you know, I'm a high school coach, coach here at Orange Lutheran. What could I do? um, You know, explain to me analytics in using it in water polo uh, here in my program, if you could.
1: Yeah. So analytics takes a lot of different forms, right? It's everything from super basic things like your gut is technically analytics because you've coached for so long, seen so many situations that when you know that you should maybe do something that's based off of like... I mean essentially statistics in your head that you've never really compiled, but you know if you do this, you're gonna be more successful than you would fail, right? So everything from your gut to being able to use the statistics you track on the bench to the video analysis just taking these different parts and putting it together. And now it could be basic statistics from just tabulating things to some simple formulas that you may put in Excel to having someone run, uh, you know, models to be able to predict a particular outcome. So analytics can be used in a lot of different ways. And so if you're a high school coach and you have, you know, no math ability or you're someone who has, um, you know, a tremendous, uh, analytical mind you could find different ways to make this part of your program you don't have to have you know some particular skill set to use this anyone can use this you really just need to have the openness to be a part of it and i think it all starts with being able to ask good questions i mean when you talk to analysts and i i went to the mit sports Sloan conference um out in Boston for years, I think last year was the first year I hadn't gone, and I would go listen to all these different forums over, you know, two days, and all these analysts would talk. And one of the things they would always say is, you know, how important it is for good questions to be asked and to figure out how to tra- to get information back to the coaching staff and to the general managers about these questions and be able to translate it in a way that they can understand it. And those are the two major factors. So coaches being able to find out like, what do you really want to know about your team and being willing, willing to ask bold questions, things that you think that may not be able to be answered with numbers. You can answer way more. Th- you can get information in answer way more things than you think you can from people think that you can't measure heart. Well, I mean, you can to some level. People think that you can't, you know, measure hustle. Well, you can to some level. I mean, all these things are possible. They may not be able to give you a complete picture, but they could for sure tell you whether or not, uh, you know, point you in the right direction. So I think it starts with asking really good questions. What do you need to know about your program to help you be successful? Now, once you know, have those questions. What information is going to help you answer that? And then how are we going to track that information? And that's where I would always try to tell people to start.
0: So are you, have you created your own platform for this that you're using internally? Because, and just as, as a, as a side note, um, I do have, I do use analytics here at Olu in some regard, I have a parent whose son plays at Stanford now who um, created like a, a stat sheet that's like really, really robust and, and, you know, it's analytics driven. He's an analytics guy. And so I've definitely seen, you know, um, and every single year he comes up to me and says, okay, what is it that you want to focus on this year? Or what, what could we have done better? And he constantly adjusts it and changes it. And so, I mean, I've definitely seen like I feel more informed as, as a coach going into games or going into practice or practice planning, because you could literally see where you're deficient in that one particular game. Like uh, what happened? Um, Are you doing this in real? Okay. So you said you built your own platform. Are you doing this in real time as people are videotaping the games? Kind of like, I can't remember what the name of that system is like game breaker or yeah. are you doing that in addition to? I mean, how intensive is it?
1: Um, it, it it changes from year to year, game to game. Uh, sometimes we feel like there's information we need to have live, and we've definitely been getting information live to us in games to try to help us make good decisions. So there's times that we're doing lots of stuff after the fact, uh, after the games are played, I would say most of the majority of the work is done post game and a lot during the off season as well, trying to analyze how the seasons went down. I mean, right now, to be honest, you know, we're going back and reanalyzing 2015, 16, 17 uh, and 18 to try to make some decisions for 2019 uh, because there's some things that, you know, we feel, didn't work out the way we wanted to work out in 2018. And we want to look at those other years and see which way our team is going to be built and which way we think is most likely to give us the best chance for success. So there's a lot of, you know, post-game, post-season analysis. And there is some stuff live, but in a game live, it's more, um, for me, I try to focus on things if I want information live, uh, indicators of us being on game plan. Hmm. That's, that's what I try to focus on live. And then post game, uh, it's really going to come down to, uh, what, what, um, what am I concerned about in that game? What questions do I have about that game or a string of games that have happened so far? And so there's some information that we track consistently. And then there are, we create new ways and new things we're tracking all the time to be able to answer
0: questions that are just have to do with this moment in this season. That's really interesting stuff. And I know that you were able to, and I don't know if you still are, but you've been part of the national team system for quite a long time, whether it's, you know, ODP or youth team or cadet. And you, you applied this to the national team at some point. Am I right? Am I right on that? Yeah,
1: I, I, uh, I, for, I started working for them just before the um, London Games, and I went to the 2012 Olympics and tried to help them out there, and then I got a contract with USA Water Polo to do data for them for the next quad through Rio, which I did that for the men's and women's team, and then now I'm on kind of a... Uh, situation where I get hired out occasionally when they have projects for me. Um, not this last Christmas break, but the previous Christmas break, there was a, a data situation. They wanted me to come down and analyze some rules and how they may have in fact, uh, impact the game. So I came down and ran some data for them then. Um, but yeah, being involved in kind of special projects at this point,
0: that's really cool. That's really cool. And, and hopefully, I mean, it's, it's been a good experience for you and and working with them and, Um, you know, and that, that sort of, I I mentioned the social media presence before. I mean, obviously the analytics part is, is really important and robust. Um, and I think some people, like you said earlier, like are afraid of analytics and they, they're like, Hey, I'm not a math person, so I don't want to even touch this. Um, but something that a lot of coaches can relate to a lot of athletic programs can relate to, and that is the social media presence and, and video and things like that, um, is that something that you felt was really important for you being at UOP? Uh, that that's question number one. And number two is, you know, is that is video and like highlight videos and things like that? Are these things that are like a hobby of yours, or is it something that you've always enjoyed doing? Um, how did that all come to ba- come about?
1: Yeah. Um, well, yes, I do feel like it's very important for us here at UOP. Um, you know, there's a book called good to great and uh in that book it, one of the things it talks about is like your hedgehog concept which is means like what can you be the best at and like make sure that you spend your energy and your focus in that particular sector so that your business kind of thrives so to speak and um our hedgehog concept here for sure is uh, technology and innovation is one of our hedgehog concepts and that we have the ability to do this uh, at the highest level and to be the best at it in the nation. And so we feel like this gives us an edge um, in, you know, playing games and recruiting and those kinds of things. So we try to constantly be on the cutting edge of what we can do from statistics to video to social media Um, honestly our goal at EOP is to be the most innovative water polo program in the world that's that's our goal that we try to hold ourselves to uh, all year long every year and we constantly ask ourselves how are we going to be better and what are we going to do that's new and how are we going to push ourselves forward and if we don't have an answer for that then we're just getting worse so we're always looking for ways but when you're doing that I mean you find good ideas. Uh, you find ideas that uh, that aren't successful. You get kind of you know, and you have to make decisions on what's worth continuing and what's not being productive for us.
0: And yeah, so it's just. A- I'm sorry. Go ahead. ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead.
1: Uh, it's, it's just a it's just a constant battle of trying to figure out how to spend your resources.
0: Yeah, and I mean, uh, like for people who aren't in the college scene or people who don't understand the college scene. I mean, recruiting is such a massive part of, of the game. I mean, that's such a big part of your job. And, and I mean, so what is it like coaching at UOP and what's it like recruiting to players? You know, what are you, what are you looking for? And, um, you know, what are some of the challenges that you, some people might not think of?
1: Yeah, I'm, I mean, coaching EOP is amazing. Uh, it's it's the perfect environment for me. I mean, because one of the things is you got to know your why. You know, why do you do what you do? And I mean, my why for sure is I love trying to solve problems that other people think are impossible. That's that's what I love, and uh, I lo- I love that in mathematics. I love that in coaching. And uh, when I first took this job. Uh, a UOP. A lot of people thought it would be impossible to win a national championship. In fact, one of my biggest mentors, Ken Lingren, who um, you know passed away in 2013, uh, he he was an Olympic coach three times and coached Long Beach State. And I asked him his advice on taking a UOP job, and he said, "I think it'd be a great opportunity for you, James. I think it'll be you know, something you'd really enjoy. I mean, you're not going to win a national championship, but I think it'll be a great opportunity." and uh and that year we almost did it and so uh and he was one of my biggest supporters so i i've always wanted to kind of try to find a way to to get that done here and so i love being an underdog and i think that this environment here at uop um you know gives you a situation where you being innovative being innovative is encouraged and uh you got to find a way to go out and take risks and be bold and um, get after it in a way that other people aren't planning on. You have to f- take a unique route to it, and uh, that challenge excites me all the time. So, coaching U- UOP is really fun, and um, it's easy to wake up in the morning
0: and get after this job. And so, I would assume that the players that you're that you're looking at. I mean, you're being transparent about what you just said to them and seeing if they're willing to take that challenge because it is, you're coming here to, to create a legacy. You're going to UOP because you want to be challenged beyond and you're trying to do something that, you know, other, other teams before you haven't been able to do. Uh, Is that part of what your, what your pitch is?
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure. Every you know, everyone that comes here, I feel like, you know, they want to be great. They have something to prove and they got a willingness to take risks and be bold, you know, and we definitely talk about if you want to come play here, you know, come here. If you want to be a reason in a program, go somewhere else. If you want to be a part of a program. And so we, we really want people that want to come in here and make a difference and have a chip on their shoulder and find a way to get things done, have something to prove. So, that type of mentality is important to us. I have that mentality. You know, my assistant coach, Joey Gulickson has that mentality. Everyone that's been kind of working for us has come in and with that mentality, and our players have it. And I think that is a, a key component to us doing what, we, what we've what we done so far.
0: And one, one thing, uh, one other side note about recruiting that I've noticed over the years is um, you've been able to find some really uh, – Integral pieces to your team that would be considered diamonds in the rough around around the country Is that is that accurate to say that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always say it's better to be lucky than good uh, <laughs> But yes, yes, I mean Alex Obert Wasn't heavily recruited out of high school at all, you know, Ben Stevenson came in I mean, there's a lot of guys I mean glue guys like, you know, Casey Fleming or I you know, uh, I mean all these guys did amazing jobs for us and, uh, so yeah, we find players from all over the place. I mean, a lot of times people are like, well, where do you look for your players? Everywhere. Yeah. You know, I don't care whether you're from Serbia or you're from Turkey or you're from Pennsylvania. Yeah. And that, I think the question is, you know, if you got the right attitude you want to do the work, then let's give it a go.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important for the the people who are listening. You know, I get a lot of co- high school coaches and, and, and even high school athletes listening to the podcast and, you know, I think some people are just close the door because they think, oh, well, they're not going to give me a chance. But, I mean, talent will always rise if you're willing to rise to the occasion, you know. And, and I mean, I think it's really important for coaches like yourself to be out there and, and promoting that. Hey, it doesn't matter if you went to XYZ high school. If you could play then and you're willing to work, then then we want you here. Um, and I, I think – more programs would be better served by having a mentality like that. So, and and not just programs, but I mean, just, you know, in general. Um, So, you know, if there was something uh, that you could change in the world of water polo right now, what would it be? You have the, you have a magic wand. (laughs) What would you change?
1: Uh, You know, that's a tough question. You always, you know, there's There's always a number of things, but I guess uh for me right now, like one of the things that I always want to try to do is find a way to make the sport better and to improve it and my metric for that is people that are interested in the sport, the fans, how many people want to come watch this, the the viewership, making it a more uh, mainstream sport and having a chance to grow the popularity because if we could do that, then there's more jobs for people inside a water pole, there's more opportunities for the players, you know, all this kind of thing that I talked about earlier on in our discussion. And so one thing I think that we can do that is not very complicated that would really help our sport a lot because... If you talk to people that don't know the sport that come to watch the sport, the, the the first thing you always hear is that they're just confused. Yeah. And I think one way to get some of the confusion out of the sport is to uh, deal with the advantage rule. And so I think we need to eliminate the advantage rule. That's my opinion. Um. And I'd be happy to explain why I think that is. Yeah. You like?
0: No, please. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So the advantage rule is unbelievably, I think, misunderstood and misinterpreted, um, and that's, that's a concern of mine because, like, if you think about the advantage rule, this is what it actually says. It says the referee shall have the discretion to award or not to award an ordinary or exclusion or penalty foul depending on whether the decision would advantage the attacking team. They shall officiate in favor of the attacking team by awarding a foul or refraining from awarding a foul if, in their opinion, awarding the foul would be an advantage to the offending team's player. The referees shall apply this principle in the fullest extent. Well, you know, here's the thing. One, obviously, this is talking about making advantage for the offense, not for the defense. An advantage. Is consistently the advantage rule is consistently used to protect the defense? Like, oh, well, we didn't make a call because uh, that the offense, you know, didn't have any advantage there. Well, that's protecting the defense. Yeah, yeah. You know, and in order to know what is advantageous, okay, because that's the definition of it. It's like, you know, it if it is an advantage to the attacking team, what it well, what is advantage? And for me, you know, you go to like a definition of advantage just on the internet. And if you want to go under the verb use, it'd be to to be, to be of service, to yield profit or gain to benefit, which I think is a pretty reasonable definition, right? So to do that, you have to actually know what is going to yield the best profit in a circumstance, and if you look at the statistics, this is where analytics come in. I've been offering my services to come in and show referee clinics the statistics on the different aspects of water pole and what the scoring rates for all these different aspects of water pole, because how can you properly apply the advantage rule without knowing what the statistics of the situations are?
0: Mm-hmm. You can't, yeah.
1: because the definition of an advantage would be what is statistically more, uh, you know, y- would yield a better profit for the offense right and so uh but we don't take this up and if you look at the advantage rule the only time realistically the advantage rule should even be applied is if there were a first wave level counter and there were some kind of exclusion going on in the backcourt that first wave counter would be more advantageous than the six on five offense Yeah, but in almost every other circumstance in all of Waterpole the offense would benefit more from the exclusion than letting the offense take or have whatever other opportunity the officials think is an advantage to them at the moment that is allowing them not to call something. So statistically, it just doesn't bear out. And this allows our sport to have a bunch of situations in which fans look at the sport and don't understand why something is being called here and not being called there. Yeah. Yeah. because the advantage rule muddies this entire thing and allows the officials to put gray area into the sport to call and not call things at their discretion to use this as a reason for not making calls when the realistically the sport would be better off for if that foul were called every single time consistently and it would still actually be underneath the advantage rule with the exception of the first wave counter so if we just called everything straight up, when there was a foul, a foul was called regardless of location in the pool, regardless of time left in the game or the quarter, and then fans would understand this better. And in order for us to be able to do that, we can't have the advantage rule as a reason not to make these these calls. It's being improperly used, and it is a constant situation that allows um, the game to be un- you can't understand
0: it. Yeah. And I, and I think I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you 100%. And and I think just to sort of like summarize a little bit, I, what I'm hearing is that you're not necessarily blaming a referee or the referees because they don't really have the information that you'd like to provide them or that other people would like to provide them, not just you, in, in terms of why what you're saying makes sense. Um, is that right? I mean, correct. It's, I'm not blaming any, any, any individual official. I think like
1: inside of our sport, you know, culturally, we need to continue to push the innovation and there is now information available statistics and I'm happy to provide them. Other people could do it. I don't care where it comes from, but they would see that if they looked at this information, that they would have to drastically change the way they call this rule. And if they're not willing to do that, then they should just eliminate this rule because it does not provide us the opportunity as a sport to go mainstream because we are, people can't understand our sport unless you've been in in it and involved in it for a long period of time and understand all of the really fine detail nuances to why if something's going to get no called and something's going to get called in that circumstances. Yeah. And even people who've been in it for a long time don't always get it. Yeah. So the advantage rule makes confusion. And confusion is bad for any sport. Anytime you turn on a television and you don't understand what's going on in this show, you don't understand why this commercial is playing, you don't understand this sport, no one's going to come back and watch it again. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I have And I've been so co- the advantage rules just got to go because it literally is the number one culprit for calls that people can't understand.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been coaching for a really long time and I still get parents who are like, I don't understand what's going on, but it doesn't matter. My kid loves it. You know, it's like that should never be something that a fan says, especially someone that has been around the sport for like they had two or three kids who've gone through the sport. That shouldn't happen. And you're always going to get you know the no call or or the bad call those things are part of every sport i mean we just saw it in the nfl a couple of weeks ago like we see it in the nba people are going to miss calls but i'd much rather them call the kickout and the the player turns around and scores and is like oh man I, they would have scored then to not get anything out of it you know what i mean like just yeah. call what happened it's a kickout who cares if they were going to score or not just call the first thing and, and let us move on. And then it's clear, yeah, I mean, cut and dry.
1: Yeah. It, that's, that's the important part is like, I think the referees are hundred percent capable of executing the rule book and doing a good job with the rule book, but the, but the advantage rule allows a situation where referees have to get taught, you know, how to disregard rules randomly throughout the game and there's no clear consensus if you were to talk to a bunch of people about how to apply the advantage rule correctly and, or even what the advantage rule even means. Yeah. You know, my take on the advantage rule here and talking about statistics, if you were to talk to most referees and most people about the advantage rule, you know, statistics would not come up in their conversation unless you brought it up. But I don't know how you can talk about being able to properly assess what is the most advantageous thing for the attacking team. If you don't know what's going to give them the best chance to score and
0: that's statistics. Yeah. Well, I think what you've done here in, in in outlining this, it's provided me with a little inspiration to maybe get one of the referees out. Someone that, you know, is very well respected, high level. And I'd love to have you back on with him or her, and have like a ta- a conversation on the podcast about the advantage rule, like s- simply about that and working through some of those intricacies, seeing what the referees say, s- you know, seeing what you say kind of counterpoints. I think that would be a really productive conversation and might spark a bigger conversation later on, uh, which seems like most coaches, cause I actually got this exact same change, um, from a couple other coaches that I've spoken to just generally, you know, like what, what would you want to change? This has come up a couple times. So other coaches are thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I would, I, one, I think that's a great idea and I'd be happy to do that um, because I think the most important thing and why I was excited about answering this question is you, in order to make change, you got to have the conversations. You know coaches got to be talking about this referees got to talk about it they got to talk about it between coaches and referees we need to have this discussion until we and, and to find out what we really think about it and what should really be done because if we're not identifying what the problem is and we're not having discussions about the problem then the problem's never going to get solved You know, and so I think that if you want to provide a platform to, um, you know, push this conversation forward and have that discussion between coaches and referees, whether I'm involved or not, I think that is a great thing for the sport of water polo.
0: Yeah, I definitely once we get offline, you know, we'll have to talk and and set something up. Uh, I'm definitely interested in doing this. I think that would be really, really important conversation to have. So um, I know we're running out of time here. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions if I could. Um, yeah, absolutely. Who have been your uh, biggest mentors or influences in coaching?
1: so um, i've had I've had a number. I've been very fortunate in my career path. Uh, Ken Lingren for sure, Monty Niskowski. they introduced me to Ricardo Azevedo, who introduced me to Robert Lynn, which got me introduced to Terry Schroeder, you know, and so I've had all these great coaches uh, be a part of, you know, my evolution as a person and as a coach, and then my athletic director, Ted Leland. But there's also, you know, so many other people that kind of get involved, because I really think about coaching, not so much as mentors, even though I could definitely consider them all mentors. I really think about it more as colleagues. And when you have these colleagues, I think it's really important for all coaches to have other coaches that they bounce ideas off of on a regular basis and learn from. And some of the people, you know, that are being really successful, you could obviously learn from, and that's where people seek those people out. But there's other people that have great Ideas that maybe don't have the recognition that not everyone listens to and really should and so you know From my assistant coaches that have worked with me like, you know, Zach Kerner, Joey Gulickson, Kendra Klein, Allie Hill They've all made me better and I would say have been a part of that process. So um, You know I I I think that um, But if I had to credit a couple people I would say Ken Lindgren and then my athletic director Ted Leland
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I mean I think it's so hard to find information, you know, going back to your last point, uh, about just like bouncing ideas. It's so hard to find in quality information about water polo in general that we're I all know. we have, you know what I mean? Like if, if you can't pick up the phone and call someone that you, that is really successful or, you know, has innovative ideas, I think we're all kind of at a standstill. So, um, and finally, what advice would you give to a young coach starting out? You know, we got a lot of coaches that are first, second, third year, high school coaching, um, age group coaching. You know, I have a, a lot of different coaches reaching out to me, uh, listening to the podcast. What what advice would you give to them, um, you know, to get started or, or to really take their program to the next level?
1: So um, when I came to UOP in 2008, um, to 2011 uh, we pretty much just failed for four years straight and then from 2000 from 2012 on uh, the trajectory of the program completely changed and one of the big things that happened obviously was an innovation and some you know moving into analytics and whatnot but what was the catalyst to all that was uh, after, the MPSF tournament in 2011 and we failed to achieve the results that we thought we were capable of, I was so frustrated that I said, you know, um, I must not understand how the game of water poles won and lost. I should do a statistical study to figure out how it, how it is. And I was half just really upset, half serious about it. But the advice I would give coaches is that that moment I was willing to finally take a look at whether or not I was doing things the right way and willing to reevaluate all my choices as a coach. And when I did that and I went through and I used statistics and different things and I decided there were no, nothing sacred in the way I coached and went like, you know, does, does hell week make sense? Does, does weight training make sense? Does, you know, playing, does pressing make sense? Does playing zone make sense? Whatever it may be recruiting in a particular fashion. Does, do these things make sense? These things that have been taught to me and passed down that I, I was a part of as a player, do these make sense? and what i would say the most important thing for a young coach to do is constantly reevaluate what you're doing constantly question whether it is the best don't let your ego get involved and feel like if you're wrong that means there's something like you're not a good coach no if you're wrong and you realize you're wrong you are a good coach okay and I am wrong all the time and I want to I want to be wrong and I talk to you know my players about it I talk to my daughter about it the only way we get better is failing and one of our sayings here is you know failure is expected but not accepted yeah we want to go out there. We want to find a way to constantly reevaluate what we're doing. Look at things that we've done in the past, decide whether or not they they should be continued or canceled or altered, and then make those changes and get better every year. And don't let your ego be involved. Find ways to just learn and, and, and be open to that. And when I started to do that, that's when I think that our program took off. And that is something that we try had to hold sacred here in this program. I just had a talk with my team, uh, the men's team, and I put an entire whiteboard full of things. There was probably, you know, 25 things that I told the team that last year, these are the things that we failed at and they're all my fault. Wow.
0: You know? Yeah. I mean, accountability. But I think that also wraps up to your other point about your mentors, about having people to tell you and surround yourself around people that are not afraid to tell you that it's not a good idea or this, I don't like this or challenge you maybe a little bit. If you're not willing to surround yourself around people who are willing to do that, then you'll never get to the point that what you're saying, the advice for young coaches, you know? So that's a key thing for me when hiring coaches is hiring people to work with
1: me that are willing to tell me that I'm wrong. You know, and, and that if I don't have those people around me that think differently than me and are willing to voice their
0: different opinions, we aren't going to be great. Well, James, I, I mean, this has been a really, really cool conversation. I mean, i I honestly have learned so much about, uh, you know, I mean, all these different points that you've made. And I mean, I hope that we can have another discussion, like I said, about the advantage rule, but also like, have you back you know, on the podcast when things are a little bit less hectic in your life. I know, you know, women's season right now, so I'm sure you you have a lot going on, but thank you so much for taking the time to be on, be on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And I'd love to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks. Good luck the rest of the way.